This is the Big Pond. I'm Veronica Saragovia in Berlin. At the heart of this episode is a story of triumph over evil. It's about the Bauhaus, a school of arts, design, and architecture that opened 100 years ago in Germany. You see, the Nazis are the reason the Bauhaus operated in Germany for just 14 years. The Nazis didn't like the art and design movement because it was avant-garde and utopian. Because some of its members had ties to the Soviet Union or to communists, others were Jewish. The Nazis did manage a short-term victory over the Bauhaus. They pressured the school to either adopt a Nazi curriculum or close down. So the Bauhaus shuttered its doors in 1933. At least half of the instructors and students fled Germany. But the students and teachers who left spread Bauhaus designs and helped it flourish around the world, including the U.S. and Israel, like in Tel Aviv. A city I lived in for about a year after college. About 4,000 Bauhaus-influenced buildings designed by Jewish architects, some who'd studied at the Bauhaus, dot the city. They have flat roofs, balconies, and simple straight or curvy lines. Join me as I talk with experts to find out what Bauhaus and its buildings are all about. This year you would say we're in like the center of Weimar. No, this is not the center, but that is the Frauenplan. That is the place where the Goethe House stands. And so I'm it walking is the with Wolfgang center. Holler. It, He's um, the director of the museums in Weimar, place, a small city in central East Germany that he loves. One of the most famous places in Germany, I think. So I'm always very proud when I say, what is your address? Frauenplan 1. That is a very famous address. It's long been associated with high culture. The composer Bach once lived here, so did the philosopher Nietzsche. Streets are clean, it has quaint open squares. Most buildings have slanted German roofs. <laughs> Perhaps this is the, uh, the most fascinating place next to Goethe, because this is the place where the German constitution after the First World War was set up. And that was in this theater over there, which is the National Theater. The name National Theater shows that we think it's an important theater. It's not perhaps the, not the best We're standing theater, in front of a statue of famed German name. authors Goethe and, and Schiller. This it's in front of the German the National Theater, German where Germany adopted a new constitution just after the First World War ended. The war destroyed Germany's economy. One German architect, Walter Gropius, who had fought in this war, had a vision to reshape German society, to make it more fair. In 1919, he gets a chance to create something new and inspiring, an art school in Weimar. He calls it the Bauhaus, or the House of Building. The idea of Gropius was a very um, social one. It was a political one. It was not only art, but it was always situated in the context of community, of society. And he said, this old world is gone and we have to build up a new world. He even wrote a manifesto which rejected art as a luxury. He wrote, quote, the ultimate aim for all creative activity is the building, end quote. He called for equality between artists and craftspeople. Later on, Gropius fused art and technology. All of its students had to take a preliminary course where you learn about 
uh, amount of color and form and materials and principles of design. And you learn by experimenting with these in the studio. Jordan Troller, originally from the U.S. and a professor in Berlin and Bauhaus expert, explains that Bauhaus rejected the kind of education you'd get at the École de Beaux-Arts in France, where students learned by copying old masterworks. Which the Bauhaus was extremely critical and vocal about um, doing away with. Then they could take other workshops like metalwork, wall painting, ceramics, printing, stained glass, and theater. I should point out that although the Bauhaus admitted many women, barely any got to be masters, the term for teachers. They mostly learned weaving. Gropius brought big names from around Europe to join his school. Artists like Vasily Kandinsky, Marcel Breuer, Laszlo Moholy-Nagy, Josef Albers, and Paul Klee. And they all came here and were very hippie-like. Holler means hippies in an early 20th century kind of way. They had kite and lantern festivals and parties on the weekends. They didn't have to wear collars or stockings. Some had long hair. Others shaved their heads. They were also promiscuous. And 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 the people were, were enraged. They, they thought this is impossible to have them here. When the Bauhaus started, Weimar had a more liberal government. But it tilted right over the years, and funding for the Bauhaus eventually got cut. In 1925, the school staff and students were sent packing. The school moved to Dessau. At first, this industrial city about 70 miles southwest of Berlin welcomed them. The city even commissioned an iconic Bauhaus building that housed the school. From the outside, it looks like a gray rectangle with red doors and lots of windows. It has the letters B-A-U, H-A-U-S, stacked vertically on one wall. The Bauhaus even had its own typography. Letters look slightly rounded and they don't have serifs, those end lines in some fonts at the bottom of an H or in a capital E. Today, this building is the Bauhaus Dessau Foundation. Florian Straub, a researcher here, pulls a chain that opens some windows. It's a chain. Yeah, the rattling. Yeah. The windows are opening. A whole row of windows. I'm going to close it again because it's cold outside. By pulling on these chains, the panels of the windows turn 180 degrees inwards. Then they can be washed from the inside. The Bauhaus was into utilitarianism. From this point on, Gropius became focused on affordable housing and mass production. Lots of people have made a connection between the Bauhaus and Ikea. Instead of being round, doorknobs resemble a sideways letter L. These are the typical um, Gropius handles designed by his office. And you can hear the echo in the corridor. Rooms have high ceilings and decoration is minimal. He 
probably hear the echoes of this room. That's because it's of the bare walls, of the concrete and so forth. But it's not only concrete, right? It's a lot of different materials like linoleum partly for the flooring or the metal of the, the, the window frames and so forth. Like you really have to pay attention. It's kind of a building at least the Bauhaus building for all the senses. Bauhaus designers wanted nothing to do with fancy ornamentation around windows and doorways. They liked flat roofs. They preferred practical yet sleek designs. These people were brave. They were brave enough to try to find a new expression for their own time, to express their time, the industrial age, after the First World War with like a new design, new architecture, and at least what you see a lot in Germany and I think all over the world is we're kind of missing that. We could be dreaming a little more. It was very important for the students to have a canteen because many of them were very poor. You're talking about poor, starving students? They were. And so the canteens uh, supplied them with cheap uh, meals to fill them up, for example, potatoes and sauce. After speaking to Straub, I joined a group tour given by Jean Colgan, originally a New Yorker. This table is 80 centimeters high, so a little bit higher, okay? So when I sit down, I'm encouraged to sit up straight my food. And by sitting up straight, I don't need the back of a chair. So with that, we can have these lovely lightweight stools, less material, elegantly put under the table, so you have form and function at the same time. Every single detail was thought about in the Bauhaus. She shows us the rooms so of again, this legendary Bauhaus campus, including the old student dorms that now serve as hotel rooms yeah. for tourists. So that. At this time, you can stay here? You can stay here. You can book a room. Yes? Yes. You know how much is it for the students? Like 60 euros or so. Not, it's not expensive. There's no breakfast. It's very bare, yes. but... Colkin reiterates that the Bauhaus was not into showy architecture. The Bauhaus didn't invent this style of architecture, okay? It was part of a movement of, of Neues Bauen, new building at the time in the early 20th century. Um, the war, the, the First World War was over, 10 million people had been killed, uh, technology had been developed, sometimes wars do that, new technology was developed, and new building materials were available. Materials like concrete, glass, and steel. The Bauhaus glorified the industrial technology of the time. Take the radiators. And here, if you see the radiators, it's kind of strange where they are. They're up high on the wall. It doesn't really make sense. Normally, your radiators are down low. It's a bit of a joke. It's the same in, in the auditorium where we just were. In the back, the, audit, the radiators are up high. It's about, in the, instead of having the portrait of the founder of the Bauhaus or paintings from all these masters who are here, it's, ta-da, technology. This is our art. So I think it's a great joke. It doesn't really make sense because the heating is going up. The Bauhaus school yeah. proclaimed form follows function. Everything they designed had a practical purpose. Fallen out of style. 
Now, Gropius himself was interested in, in the flat roof for design reasons, and he even had a survey in an architecture magazine at the time asking other renowned architects, what do you think of the flat roof, okay? And he was convinced. One was the style. It, um, also, another factor was that the whole building can be used, like normally with a, with a uh, gable roof, you, you can't use the, the attic so well. Also, there was less uh, fire hazard, um, and of course, the aesthetic. And also that water could be drained, because it's going toward the middle, interior, not, and you wouldn't have any gutters or downspouts outside affecting the design. Plus you could, on, uh, for example, on the uh, studio part, uh, you could use the roof for exercises and for parties and all. So. People at the Bauhaus themselves placed a huge emphasis on architecture as this, the mother of all the arts. Here's Jordan Troller again. Because it, and the building would contain all kinds of different kinds of crafts. Like it would have, you know, textiles within, a, within an interior, furniture design, stained glass window, um, of course, paintings and photographies hanging on the wall. Um, so they thought about the building as being this kind of vessel for all these different ways of, of producing artistic objects. Sometimes they would take the, the flooring and kind of curve it up slightly onto the wall so that the mop would be able to get all of it and not like encounter this hard edge where dirt would get stuck in the corner. <laughs> so Things weren't always smooth going at the Bauhaus. Tempers flared, teachers and directors came and left, the school had three directors over its 14 years. When the Nazi party gained strength in Dessau state government, the school's reputation started to diminish. Newspapers criticized it. Critics called the teachers and students communist sympathizers. In the summer of 1932, the Nazi party forced the Bauhaus out. So it packed up and moved again, this time to Berlin. The school reopened in an empty telephone factory, and the famed architect Mies van der Rohe took over. Not long after, police searched the building. Students were arrested, and the school closed under Nazi pressure. People fled, especially if they were Jewish, or identified with leftist ideology, or really for any and all of the reasons an artist would escape a dictatorship. They fled to different countries, many to the U.S. I think without America... The Bauhaus wouldn't be that what it is today, or what we think that it is today. Finally, it is an idea. It is not the historic Bauhaus anymore. That's Wolfgang Holler again, our Weimar expert. In the U.S., the Bauhaus got lots of attention. There was a 1938 exhibit at the Museum of Modern Art in New York. The school's founder, Walter Gropius, taught architecture at Harvard University. Two of the major Bauhaus figures went to Chicago. Bauhaus legends have designed buildings in states like Massachusetts, Illinois, Michigan, and New York. But on the 100th anniversary of the Bauhaus, the attention on the school is largely in Germany. And we are very hard working to show that it, the Bauhaus comes from Weimar. It was founded here, and that was a really very important. It was the initiation of the Bauhaus, and it was the, perhaps the most... Um, vivid time. In Weimar, a new Bauhaus museum recently opened. Wolfgang Holler shows me that it's across from a big Nazi-era hall called the Gau Forum. It's really brutal, but 
great and the enormous building of the Gau Forum of the 30s, which was not, um, wie sagt man das, uh, beendet, nicht vollendet. It was not um, finished. finished. It was not finally not finished, but it is the most perfect Gau Forum in Germany. It was the most perfect. It's very ugly, but it was to show the, the attitude of this new system and, and to have big assemblies of people. There, there's a hall, the hall of the folk, the folks hall. The Nazis coordinated forced labor there. Really next to this building is the Bauhaus. And so we have these, so we talk about this, antipodes. It really is right next to it. Next to it. Hmm. At this new museum, they plan to host political discussions and invite Germany's new right-wing party, the Alternative für Deutschland. It's a party full of controversy. One senior leader said Germany's politics of Holocaust remembrance cripples the country. The party disparages Muslim immigrants. Holler hopes they'll come talk to people here with opposing views. Back in Berlin, architect Robert Huber is working on another space for dialogue, this one using old Bauhaus materials. His project is called Bauhaus Reuse. They're reusing windows that used to be on the north facade of Dessau's Bauhaus building we visited earlier. These windows were taken down in 2011 and replaced. This makes people aware of thinking how to deal with modern heritage like how to deal with heritage in general, you know. Um, of course, there's always like this uh, decision to make uh, if something gets old, if something is outdated, how do we deal with it? Do we throw it away? Is it worse to refurbish? We're standing and, um, on a roundabout with cars driving by. Or on that square, we are allowed to be guests for some years with our project Bauhaus Reuse. Yeah. Here on the place, where you can see here in the background, be careful, there's a car coming. It's yeah, from the construction site. <laughs> here in uh, the middle of it, students are building a glass pavilion. The Bauhaus reuse idea goes further so that, that it's also like the construction, like we do it now with apprentices. It's following the Bauhaus idea in the sense of um, that we bring together uh, people on the construction site, the Bauplatz, like Kropius said, and that they really, uh, you know, get a very broad understanding of material, of, uh, of architecture, of construction, of the, of the different aspects of uh, design. Yeah, they, they get a practical experience, and that's very important. And also for us, it's very important to bring together students and apprentices, um, like the Bauhaus uh, basically did. Yeah, they Once the pavilion is ready, Huber says they'll host discussions on topics like urban planning, sustainable architecture, and the Bauhaus. 100 years later, it really feels like the Bauhaus never left Berlin. Wunderbar Together. You've been listening to The Big Pond, a series of dialogues between Germans and Americans, coming to you from PRX and the Goethe Institute.